Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan, being joined by Andre. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Ken Benzinger. He is a politics reporter for the New York Times, currently covering the right-wing media. But in the past, he has covered the world of international football. And for our American fans, I'm calling it football and not soccer because the rest of the world calls it football. Uh, He wrote a fabulous book entitled Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. He's also featured in the recent Netflix docuseries, FIFA Uncovered. I really strongly recommend that you all check out both of them. And Mr. Benjinger is an award-winning journalist. He won two Loeb Awards and was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in National Reporting in 2010. So Ken, lots to talk about now that the World Cup is officially kicked off. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Ryan. So Ken, so how important is football internationally? I mean, a lot of our listeners are based in the United States. uh, And well, personally, my own family has some roots in Sri Lanka. So we sort of understand the international significance of sport like cricket, but football seems to be on a whole other level. So I sort of want to start the conversation by trying to get your perspective on understanding football's political, economic, and social significance to so many countries throughout the world. So um, um, America uh, is exceptional in a lot of ways, and one of which is it, it, it soccer is not the main sport here. There's very or soccer football, footballs we're calling it. There's very few countries in the world that don't uh, uh, have football as their as their their number one sport. In some countries, it kind of feels like the only sport. Um, you know, we have baseball, we have a, what the rest of the world calls American football. Um, we have basketball, we have hockey, and then sort of in fourth or fifth place is soccer but in in most other countries and sri lanka might be an exception pakistan is another example of an exception um there you're talking about um uh the the number one two three sports all being occupied by football um you know so uh my wife's home country for example argentina is really there are other sports and they're pretty good at things like rugby but they really only talk about about soccer so as a kind of a from the first level from the sporting interest it is a huge passion in these countries um, but the next thing up from that is uh, the incredible fan base of these countries makes it a cultural phenomenon that 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 spills into far beyond just the, the sporting interest realm. It becomes a, a, a social, um, political and economic force in a lot of countries. Right. I mean, we're talking about a fan base internationally of um, billions. Right. We measure in the billions of people, you know, three, four billion people in the world watch watch the sport. Um, the World Cup is watched by the finals, watched by a billion people. It makes the Super Bowl seem kind of like, a, you know, a very small uh, sort of regional tournament as opposed to the World Cup. So massive, massive, massive international appeal, massive amounts of money going into it through television and sponsorship and all that. And um, massive influence in countries when you have something that so many people in a country are interested in, um, politicians can't help but pay attention to it. Um, and uh you know, you have multiple instances of countries where um, uh, members of parliaments or Congress or or other legislative bodies are former uh, football players or former football officials. Argentina, which I mentioned earlier, their previous president um, came up through soccer. He was the president of Boca Juniors, which is the one of the two most popular professional club teams in the country. Um, and then he went on to be mayor of Buenos Aires and then president of the entire country. Um, he's one of many such examples where um, uh, the sport itself actually brings people in politics. So enormously influential, 
um, something that moves massive amounts of money, but also massive amounts of voters. And so you have um, uh, you see the importance of it on, in those kind of those kind of spheres. Um, and the World Cup, uh, I think, you know, is the most famous thing in, in soccer and is um, has massive geopolitical importance as well. And we're certainly seeing that with this year's World Cup, and we'll definitely get into the 2022 World Cup in Qatar. Uh, but I do want to talk about how international football soccer is organized. I think everyone has heard of FIFA, but people may not be familiar with, you know, really how FIFA is governed, uh, the organizational structure, and just how powerful it is. And so, Ken, could you kind of explain for our audience those kind of attributes of FIFA as an organization and the smaller confederations and really just the power structure. Yeah, so FIFA is um, uh, the top organization, the organizing thing in, in all of world soccer. It's a, it's not really like other sports that we think of um, that are more uh, balkanized or fragmented. FIFA is a very top-down pyramidal structure um, at the top of everything. And in a sense, even sort of little, little like AYSO type soccer leagues in the U.S., have connective tissue all the way up to FIFA and its headquarters in Zurich. It's very hierarchical in that sense. And FIFA itself was founded um, in 1904 uh, in Paris. And um, the idea was to put together um, uh, all of these international um, organizations that were, you know, country by country governing their sport, but wanted to play each other. England wanted to play France and Belgium wanted to play Germany, that sort of thing. And they didn't have standardized rules. The sport was still relatively young and they wanted to standardize their rules about, you know, what's a penalty or how big the field should be or how many substitutions you might have, all these kind of things we see now. They were trying to figure out how to make them standardized so that if France played Belgium, it would be a fair matchup and not one where the rules of one country were different than the rules of another. That was the beginning of it. And it really kind of in a in a very quaint way remained that way for decades. Um, the major, you know, the major event in the thing, of course, is the World Cup. And the World Cup, there's a fun, interesting story of why that emerged, which was that the Olympics um, had a soccer tournament, still do have a soccer tournament, and it was enormously popular. And when they introduced it, people loved it. It became one of the featured events of the Olympics. And um, it was so popular that the people running FIFA kind of got jealous and said, well, we've got to get in on the act. And the first World Cup was in 1930 in Uruguay. And the reason it was created was to try to to sort of steal some of that glory away from the International Olympic Committee. Um, and it was hosted in Uruguay because Uruguay was the best team in the world by far back then. And Uruguay had won, um, I believe, the 1924 and 1928 Olympic gold medal in uh, in soccer. And so they said, well, let's hold this, host a tournament, this first World Cup in Uruguay because they're the best. And they indeed won that World Cup. Um, and away we went. And now, of course, it's massively more popular than Olympic soccer. And um, it's it's the it's the big premier event. Um, FIFA now is based in Zurich um, and has something like 211 member organizations. Um, it's bigger than the UN. In fact, there are more members of FIFA than the UN. Um, that's because FIFA is pretty generous when it comes to defining what a country is compared to the UN. So things like Guam, which is a U.S. protectorate. In Puerto Rico, also U.S. Uh, territory, um, are considered independent voting nations within within FIFA. Within the structure, FIFA has six confederations, uh, and those divide the world geographically into, I guess, semi more manageable pieces. So you have um, you have UEFA, which is Europe, um, which stretches, which includes like um, Russia and um, Israel, 
um, and also everything we th sort of think of as Western and Central and Eastern Europe. Um, you have the AFC, the Asian Football Confederation, which is stretches from like Syria all the way to Japan and Korea. Um, and you have Oceania, which is things like New Zealand and um, Vanuatu and these, these, these South Pacific islands. You have the um, CAF, the, the African Confederation, and that's well all of Africa. Um, and then you have um, uh, CONMEBOL, which is South America, which is the smallest in terms of the number of teams, only 10 teams, but um, a lot of World Cup victories in, in that continent. And finally, you have CONCACAF, which is uh, North America, Central America, and the Caribbean, uh, rounding, out, rounding out the six confederations. Within those confederations, each country has its own uh, uh, football association, they're called, and that controls it in the sport. So here in the U.S., we have the U.S. Soccer Federation, um, and representatives from each one of those national organizations reports up to the confederation, which then sends people up to FIFA. Um, within the U.S., then you have lower organizations below that that for further regionally split up the sport. So that's kind of the structure. Um, it's run in a nominally democratic way, meaning each country has, each member state has a vote. Those votes are used to determine who the president of FIFA is. Um, and um, voting within the confederations determines what representatives are sent to FIFA. It used to be, and maybe we'll get into this later, used to be that FIFA had a committee that would determine where the World Cup is held. Now, after some of these scandals we're going to get into, they changed the rules so that now voting for where the World Cup is going to be held will be voted on, will be determined by the FIFA Congress, which is all the member nations. Um, but the idea is that it's democratic. It's a criti criticized idea in some ways because um, it's kind of like the U.S. Senate or something. Um, you know, every state gets two senators, but not every state is the same. Um, uh, so, you know, Vanuatu, which I mentioned, or um, the Seychelles get votes despite having very small populations. Um, and they get the same number of votes as China or Brazil or Germany get, um, both all three of which are giant countries with lots of people. So, um, and in the case of Germany and Brazil, quite a uh, quite a number of World Cup victories and general soccer um, success behind them compared to Vanuatu, which has none of that. So it is democratic, but some people criticize, criticize that, believe that it should be weighted differently um, to reflect population and and football ability. So what does actually hosting a World Cup mean for a country? Not necessarily what it means for the people, but more so for the governments. For example, opportunities to project a government soft power, opportunities to project an ideology or propaganda. What opportunities exist for that through sports at the World Cup? Yeah, I kind of think there's sort of like two models of World Cup uh, hosting. One of them is one that sort of like the U.S. employed when it had the World Cup in 94 and, and will again in 2026. And the U.K., England would have if it had hosted in 2018. There's a few other examples like that, which are um, highly developed countries that for the most part already have the infrastructure in place um, and have, uh, you know, are, I mean, everyone likes good PR, but I think they're less interested in the PR aspects and more interested in sort of um, you know, things that that maybe domestically politicians can claim a little bit of credit for or um, kind of the feel good events that mayors like and that there's sort of internal political motivations for it. Um, but they're not country changing events. They don't lead to massive infrastructure spends and tend to be self-financed. Um, so, for example, the 94 World Cup was not government financed. It was it was it was it was not done that way. So really, 
there was minimal involvement from the government in that in general it was really about the, about the support itself inside it and and what it does provide is in a country like the US or the UK um a huge amount of money right because these these places because the infrastructure is so well in place and all that there's a tremendous opportunity um to turn over a lot of dollars and indeed the 94 world cup in the US was the most financially successful tournament ever ever held and showed a huge huge surplus just like the 84 olympics did as well so um holding these events in those kind of places make it basically good business sense but the other model is one that um that we saw in places like brazil um that in places like russia and that we're seeing in qatar which is um these have to do with uh, massive infrastructure spends um uh which which you know puts a lot of money into new hands um and they have to do with uh, i think what you referenced to about soft power and that kind of stuff which um have to do with projecting an image of a country abroad so countries like qatar or russia um or to a smaller degree brazil were interested in um spreading the good word about their country to tell a story about themselves that the whole world can hear qatar in particular has a huge project as a tiny nation with a relatively low profile in the past um it's it's got all kinds of different programs it's put out there to try to to get out to get sort of inform the world about cutter and tell the story it wants to tell and sports is a big part of that some people when you talk about a country with some you know um potentially questionable human rights issues and um uh you know problems about sort of the what their economy is based upon who their friends are some of the ways they behaved you start thinking about it using sport um, not for the glory of the sport or not, and certainly not for the business of sport, because it's certain that a country like Qatar is not going to make money off this tournament. But what they are going to do is try to sort of clean up their image. And people call that sports washing or sport washing. Um, the using an event like this where they don't truly care about the sport or what happens, in it, but they use it as a way um, uh, uh, to, to, they hope, hopefully improve their image. Sort of what politicians in the US would refer to as earned media as opposed to bought media. Right. They think that they get all this press and coverage in a way they couldn't otherwise. So um, it's very clearly, very clearly that I was just thinking while I'm saying it, another sort of classic example of this would be the 78 World Cup in Argentina. Um, Argentina held the World Cup there in the middle of this brutal dictatorship, um, literally a, a, a less than a mile away from where the World Cup final was held, was the, the country's most notorious um center where um, dissidents were scooped up tortured and ultimately killed um, and there's accounts from people who are in this detention center of being able to actually hear the cheering in the stadium um, during the final when Argentina won um, there's pictures of the FIFA president standing next to the dictator of Argentina um, so it's a tremendous public relations event for them where they can get the whole world talking about them get jer travel journalists and other go there to write stories about all the fun things to do in one of these countries and write reviews of their restaurants or whatever it might be. These are all things that would have happened otherwise and ones that the countries think um, is worth the spend to somehow accomplish PR goals. So Ken, I mean, you've obviously laid out how countries benefit from hosting World Cup. And you also mentioned that there are kind of commercial successes for international football. And obviously FIFA being the governing body, gets a huge cut of that. And so with all this money coming in, the commercialization of international football, where did things start to go wrong with the corruption inside this organization and countries jockeying to host a World Cup? Is there maybe a certain like a turning point or individuals that were instrumental in the corrupting of international football? Yeah, if you could 
if you could pinpoint a moment sort of you know the when <clears throat> when the, the the football world bit the apple and uh and everything went bad it would be june 1974 in in frankfurt germany um and that is when fifa for the first time elected a non-european president of the organization now i want to be quick to say that i'm very much in favor of um fifa uh, being diverse in its membership and in its leadership and i think it's really important that fifa not be uh, controlled only by europeans but um it was a turning point because for the first time someone um outside of this sort of um you know uh, tweed uh tweed blazers and uh cigar crowd um took over the sport instead it was a brazilian named by the name of joao Havalange who was elected and he ran on a kind of a globalizing platform saying that fifa needed to be less european and more representative um, but he was also a businessman. He didn't come up in sort of the amateur idealist sport. He didn't come up with these kind of the previous guy and who would very much believe is that even sports should be treated like amateur endeavors. And Avalanche saw it very differently. He saw sport as a as an opportunity to make money, um, particularly for himself. And um he was very open um to to letting new money come into the sport at a perfect time for that, because this is also when um cable television and international satellite television are coming into play and so for the first time ever there's a source of revenue to fifa other than sales at the time basically all the money fifa brought in was from a 10 percent cut or five or ten percent i can't remember which of the gate at, at internationally sanctioned matches um suddenly tv comes into the picture and a few clever people from the outside particularly um this guy named horse dassler who is the son of the founder of adidas come in with a, an, a vision for how to grow the economic aspects of the sport um and um at this perfect time because they have this they have this idea that technology is there to make the sport much more accessible around the world and you have a new leader at fifa who is completely receptive to to a vastly more commercial entity. Um, and it turns out he's also completely receptive to taking bribes. Um, and so within just a few years of taking over FIFA, you now have this, this completely different system where massive amounts of money are coming in for the first time. And um, huge bribes are also being paid to ensure that despite the huge, huge new contracts, the contracts are actually less expensive than they should be. FIFA is getting less money than it should be because it, it's it, officials are taking money um, in exchange for for good sweetheart deals to the rights buyers. So, could you tell us a little bit about Joseph Sepp Blatter, who was the eighth president of FIFA between 1998 and 2015, and someone who was very much implicated in a lot of the uh, FIFA corruption cases? Can you tell us a bit about him, his influence, and so on, and wh why was he so important? So Blatter was um, Avalanche's successor as president of FIFA. Um, and he was kind of his protege in some ways. Um, Blatter was a Swiss guy, is a Swiss guy who came up um, in the marketing side of sports for years. He worked for Longines, which is a Swiss watch manufacturer that sponsored um, the Olympics. And you would see if you watch, maybe still to this day, I'm not sure, but certainly back in the day, if you'd watch footage of like track and field races, anything where there's a timing element at the Olympics, you would see that the what the big official clock they used would say Longines next to it. And he was a guy who would make those deals. And um when this guy I mentioned earlier, uh uh Dassler from Adidas starts uh um you know making nice nice with with Avalanche and FIFA, he decides he needs a 
eye on the inside to sort of make sure that everything's going the way it's supposed to be. He basically needs a mole inside FIFA. And the guy he picks is his mole, Bladder. He trains Bladder, has him work in Adidas for six months or a year, and then puts him into FIFA. And uh, Bladder is then working as sort of low-level guy in a small organization, um, kind of reporting back, you know, to to Dassler and Adidas what's happening there. Um, but within a couple of years, he gets ambitious and sees potentially opportunities at the top of FIFA. And so he becomes the secretary general of FIFA, which is the number two position under Avalanche. And it, you can think of that as like the COO, the chief operating officer of FIFA. And for um, many years, he was in that position. And, and that's a front row seat to see every element of, of how the sport works, and particularly a lot of the shadowy, dark arts of, of administering an, uh, a global sports organization. Um, in 1998, Blatter is elected president of FIFA. Um, there's interesting stories about how that came to pass and how he got the opportunity to be elected. Um, some suggest that Avalanche never wanted to step down and that Blatter um, had damaging information about bribes that Avalanche was taking and used them to blackmail him into agreeing to, to retire. In any event, he did retire um, and cleared the way for Blatter to be elected. But even then, there's many stories about Blatter handing out envelopes full of cash to people to ensure that he got the votes. Um, he takes over the organization um, and steers it through all kinds of ups and downs and some pretty significant crises, including the uh, bankruptcy and failure of this organization founded by Dassler, who I mentioned earlier. Um, it was called International Sport and Leisure. It's a Swiss company that basically controlled all of FIFA's rights for years and years. Also, the Olympic Committee, also Formula One, also tennis. A lot of international sports were controlled by this organization, um, which went bankrupt. And the reason it went bankrupt is because ultimately it was paying more bribes than it was was able to to sort of capitalize against and make money off of. Um, so it, it bribed itself into insolvency. And in some trials and some litigation that came out afterwards, there was lots of evidence about the bribe taking by FIFA officials that was sealed and hidden by Swiss courts for over a decade. So no one even knew. Um, uh, and that was sort of that was sort of uh, how Blatter came into power, steering through all that stuff. And um, he was an incredibly uh, sort of adroit um politician he uh someone once said to me he's the greatest politician of the last 50 years um uh because he worked an organization where every single other person wanted to put a knife in his back every single day everyone wanted power in fifa and he had to fend it off and negotiate it and he was successful doing it and actually winning re-election um handily every single time a really stunning uh fact is that when he when the U.S. finally sweeps in and orders the arrest of all these people in Zurich in 2015. Um, he, this is right in the middle of a FIFA Congress where he's standing up for election once again. And just two or three days after this takedown, all these people are being arrested and it's massive international news for days and days. He stands for election anyway. He doesn't postpone the election. He doesn't, you know, do anything except for just say, vote for me. And they do. He wins in a complete landslide, even as the entire world is calling his organization that he that he runs corrupt so that's the kind of fellow uh that bladder is it really is just such a fascinating story and just kind of how rife corruption is across fifa from the top down um is a in fascinating story in and of itself uh as you mentioned this case started by the united states the 2015 corruption case of course it started far before that with the investigations by fbi our irs doj um where did this investigation begin what were they investigating 
And how did this have a nexus with the U.S.? So um, the the FBI opens this case in 2010 in secret, right? Like a lot of FBI cases, it's a secret case. In this case, what my reporting found is that it started because the FBI had a, a, um, a Russian organized crime squad out of the New York field office. And that squad was looking um, at the time was looking for international money laundering type cases and movements of, of what they call transnational crime. And um, uh, the guy running this unit goes to London because Russia is his mandate and London, other than Moscow, uh, London is kind of the hotbed of Russian activity in the world. He goes there and starts meeting with sources. And one of the people he meets with is a guy who ends up becoming very famous a few years later, but at the time was uh, pretty much unknown. Um, a guy named Christopher Steele. Um, and Chris Steele uh, is a former MI6, which is kind of like the British CIA officer um, who had been in Russia and was the head of their Russia desk and um, knows a lot about it. And he had done a little bit of work um, on some soccer things and used the information he'd drawn from that to tell his FBI agent that, hey, maybe he should look into what Russia at the time was doing to try to win the World Cup bid. There was going to be a vote in December 2010 to determine excuse me, who would um, who would get the 2018 and 2022 Cups. And um, the the implication from Steele and others was that Russia was was breaking laws to try to to try to get that vote. So the FBI agent goes back to New York, talks to a prosecutor, prosecutor agrees it's interesting, and they open the secret. And um, they spend the next year trying to figure out how to, to this work. Um, it's tricky because the footprint of soccer in the U.S. at the time was not very big. Um, and the FBI and the IRA and the, and the DOJ were very sort of acutely aware that with a sport as influential and important in other countries and so intensely scrutinized by media in those countries that if they made too much noise in other countries, if they tried to team up with France or with England or with Spain or any other country, there was a pretty high risk that they could um, end up sort of blowing the lid off their investigation before it even got going. And so they had to figure out how to do this case without telling anyone in other countries that they were doing it. Um, and they realized that to, they realized pretty quickly that the best way to do that would be to find an insider who's willing to work with them, right? So they spent a lot of time trying to figure out who was someone inside of FIFA that they could get to help them out. And ultimately, the most clear target was this American um, who was on the FIFA executive committee. Um, he was the actually the high-ranking American probably in the history of FIFA um, at the time. Uh, his name was Chuck Blazer. Um, and as they dug into him, they discovered he was extremely colorful. That was just the beginning of the investigation, right? So they had to figure out how to get this guy to cooperate or get someone to cooperate. And they were unable to do so. And it really, it, the investigation was quite stalled out when, by the time the vote what happens in 2010, December, when Russia ends up getting the World Cup that they clearly had been bribing them to getting. And when um, Qatar kind of stuns the world by getting the World Cup rights as well, beating out the U.S. and Australia and Korea, um, uh, the secret FBI DOJ investigation is stalled out. They don't have any good leads. Nothing is really panned out. Uh, but the following, starting with that, that, that fatal vote and the next six months of activity within FIFA, sort of a series of dominoes fall that make it possible for a major thing to happen, which is that um, in uh, the fall of 2011, an IRS agent out in California gets involved in the case. Um, this is a guy uh, named Steve Berryman, who's a, a top IRS agent, and he happens to be a big soccer fan, a football fan. He um, 
he more or less by accident just sort of here's a rumor that the FBI might be poking around in soccer corruption. It might be looking into this guy, Blazer. Um, and he backgrounds the guy and looks into him and discovers that he um, hasn't been paying taxes. And that's the sort of foot in the door that the IRS is going to need to get into the case. So he um, travels to New York, meets with the prosecutors, meets with the FBI agents and convinces them to let him in on the case. And from that point on, he kind of takes the lead on everything. And, and um, by the end of 2011, they've finally flipped this guy, Chuck Blazer. They've they figured out the way to get him and they go and they sit him down and they sort of make, give him one of those um, offers he can't refuse. And they say, you know, you basically play along with us or you're going to go to prison. And so he becomes a secret cooperator with the, IF, uh, with the FBI and IRS. He wears a wire. He provides them documents. He provides them, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of hours of interviews about how it all works. He becomes their kind of their tour guide into this into this very complicated and not well understood world. Um, and that culminates in 2015 when um, after now five years of investigation, they stage a massive, through the Swiss police, a massive raid in Zurich um, at the time of the annual FIFA Congress and um, arrest seven officials out of their ho- their luxury hotel and multiple other people around the world simultaneously are arrested. Um, and in the, fo- the following morning, um, uh, New York time, they unseal a massive, like 150 or so page indictment um, against FIFA. And six months after that, they, end- they unseal a second indictment, amazingly arresting several more people in the exact same hotel. Um, it was like a deja vu moment. Um, and now that now the indictment's grown to like 250 pages, it's one of the biggest you'll ever see. Um, incredibly complicated um, story of the corruption corruption of this sport over decades, um, and um, a document that really confirms lots of things that many people suspected for many years, but never really had any kind of documentation of. It's all there. And when there was ultimately a trial in the case, you could really see the amount of work they'd done because they were they had spreadsheets of you know, hundreds, if not thousands of bank accounts. And you could literally see, they would trace how money moved from one person to the other through a, mid, through a middleman. Um, and then you could see that, then they would show you the act, the contract that those two parties signed together. So they really, they nailed it now very, they've totally nailed the whole system of corruption within FIFA. Um, what this led to was the removal of two to three generations of power within FIFA, um, uh, multiple people, think more than two dozen people pleading guilty, people getting prison time, people coughing up hundreds, you know, tens of millions, ultimately, I think collectively $200 million in, in, um, in, in illicit money that they had to give back to, to the U S department of justice, which is now giving it back to, to FIFA and other organizations. As a side note, I think that's always, I always thought it was ironic that FIFA has claimed it's the victim of the corruption of FIFA. Um, but that, is how the case has been organized that that FIFA is considered a victim of itself. And so the the money that the government, the Justice Department has collected is paying back to FIFA as restitution for the crimes that its officials committed. And so this all leads us to today, the 2022 FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Uh, of course, you know, the World Cups are decided years and years in advance. And so, you know, they had this decision to have Russia and Qatar host the 2018 and 2022 World Cups. Lots of allegations of bribery, and yet, you know, both of those went off with kind of without a hitch as far as they were completed. Of course, the 2022 one is currently ongoing, and so with these allegations of bribery um, in surrounding the current World Cup, 
Um, have there been any kind of substantive changes both with, within FIFA and to kind of Cutter's maybe, I don't know, semblance of having some kind of moral standing here? I mean, I, I know that you've been active on Twitter and some people have you know decided to blame FIFA, not Cutter, but you know who's who's to blame here? For all this corruption. Well, I mean, some of the some of the things that are being criticized about FIFA, excuse me, about Qatar, um, are conditions that don't really have anything directly to do with FIFA, but are brought into the spotlight by the fact that FIFA is hosting the world the World Cup, right? So, FIFA's record on human rights um, was was bad before it ever decided to build um, a bunch of stadiums in the desert, um, and FIFA's stance on on gay rights and on women's rights and on numerous other things are at least by, you know, standards of many other countries in the world. And, you know, a lot of that's the West um, are, are sort of not up to bar and are on, and in some cases shock the conscience. Um, But you you could certainly argue that FIFA brought this, excuse me, that Qatar brought this scrutiny upon itself by, you know, by demanding to be in the spotlight so much that they actually were willing to pay bribes to get it. It's, you know, um, they don't they're not really don't have a long uh, strong leg to stand on in terms of complaining about the fact that people are looking at those things um but you could also argue that the world cup maybe exacerbated some of those problems i mean the human rights thing in particular when you have to build this much infrastructure this quickly in a country that doesn't have it um in a country that doesn't have a citizenship base either of laborers i mean just four hundred thousand qataris um and there's uh maybe six times that population of non-qatari people living in the country, most of whom were hired help. Um, they had to do a, just an incredible infrastructure spend in a short amount of time. And the way they did it um, is mostly through this kafar system where people are basically indentured servants. They're brought over from countries like Nepal and Pakistan and Bangladesh. Um, and many of them um, surrender their passports um, and pay huge sort of um, finder's fees to even get into the country. And then they have to work off their debt. They're as if they're in debtor's prison from the moment they get there um, and they're treated really poorly. And there's been a lot of reporting um, by my colleagues and others to show the dire conditions there and how people are forced to work in blazing, horrible summer heat to build these, to build these hotels and stadiums and roads and subways in time for the world cup. So that I think you could, you could think about a situation where the problems are even magnified by the world cup. Um, a defense that has been made about Qatar is in terms of the corruption, about the, the bribes it appears to have paid is it's certainly not the first country to do that, right? There's pretty good evidence that Russia bribed to get its World Cup, that um, South Africa paid bribes to get its 2010 World Cup, that Germany was involved in a corruption scandal to get the 2006 World Cup. There's a long history, even dating back to maybe Mexico in 86, there's some question about whether it cheated to get its World Cup. So Qatar, Qatar could make the argument that hey, this is what everyone does. This is how the game is played. And it is unfair and maybe even, you know, racist to suggest that somehow we're worse than anyone else when we're just we're just doing what everyone else did. And, you know, I, I think um, there are certainly questions about whether Western countries treat uh, an Arab country in a different way um, and an unfair hold them to a standard that is that is not fair. Um, and that there is some, there are some real discriminatory questions there. But on the other hand, I think it is the fact that the World Cup is in World, in Qatar right now, and the reason there's so much scrutiny is not because they're Arabs, but because the World Cup is there right now. That's where the news story is. That's where the scrutiny is. And I think that was the case with the World Cup in Russia. Certainly, people weren't talking about Qatar then; they were talking about Russia. And so, I think 
um, Qatar, Qatar wants kind of wants it both ways. They want all the attention, but they only want positive attention. They don't like the negative attention. Um, you asked who's to blame. I mean, I think FIFA created a system where um, where bribery and corruption are the norm. So certainly they're the heavy hitting bad guys of that story. Um, but, you know, countries aren't forced to participate in it. Qatar, Qatar went into that willingly. Um, and um, and also at the same time, FIFA didn't force Qatar to use something tantamount to slave labor. FIFA didn't force Qatar to um, to threaten um, gay people with prison for being gay um, or uh, people who are unfaithful to their spouses with prison for, for adultery. Um, those are not things that FIFA enforced. What FIFA did enforce, though, is kind of a, um, a muzzle on all its participants, the teams and players and coaches. Um, from talking about these problems in Qatar. FIFA has made it very clear that it's all too happy to um, to do whatever Qatar tells it to do. And the person sort of driving the car, driving the bus is is not is not the president of FIFA right now. It is the emir of Qatar. Yeah, and the president of FIFA gave a very recent uh, sort of quote-unquote impassioned speech where he said he is of many different demographics, uh, which sort of caught some ire, I think, on social media. But uh, I, I guess what's the net benefit for Qatar uh, as a result of hosting this World Cup, right? Like we're getting some focus on the negative, but certainly as with the Olympic Games, any sort of international sporting event, there's a lot that uh, the host country would benefit from. So like, what are we already seeing in terms of benefits for Qatar? Well, I mean, I just think that, you know, there's no way that people are talking about Qatar uh, the, uh, the way they are without the World Cup, right? I mean, it is... It is successful in the sense that it brings all these eyeballs to and all this attention in a place that otherwise is not normally talked about, except in sort of like, you know, elite geopolitical circles. Now you have people who never think about that, who couldn't locate it in a map, who now know all sorts of things about it. Now, I, th I personally have noticed this. I haven't done a study of it or anything that usually when you think about a World Cup, you see all these sort of, you know, um, mag TV magazine type pieces where they're like showing you the natural beauties of the country and you get reporters who go and they go to like the waterfalls or the or like the volcano or whatever like natural things they have or you have other people you know when it was in brazil you're like getting tours of like the favela and you're seeing different cultural aspects of the country we haven't seen i haven't seen very much of that with cutter just because it's a very tiny country the size of connecticut and there isn't too much to see frankly beyond the main city of doha so it really um, is much more intensely focused um, I guess on the soccer and the football, and 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 maybe also on these complaints about um, about how they the kind of the, the sort of civil liberties that this country does or does not enjoy. Um, and again, um, I think Qatar, if it's bitter about that, it only has itself to blame. I mean, it it sort of invited the scrutiny of this. Is a very poor analogy, I think, but it reminds me of when um, Gary Hart. This really dates me. I apologize, but when Gary Hart was running for president. Um, in the 80s, um, there was there was all these rumors that he was uh, being unfaithful to his wife and all this. And he challenged the press. He said, if you think you think I'm unfaithful, my wife, go well, come around, follow me, you know, see if I'm unfaithful to my wife. And so they did. And they found out he was unfaithful to his wife. And, <laughs> um, you know, I th there's a famous I think he was on a boat called the monkey business. So, you know, if you don't want that kind, if you sort of it's a, I think it's a you can't stand the heat, stay out of the kitchen sort of situation. I think Cutter invited the world to come look at its its itself and all the warts are are getting focused on as well. I will say Gary Hart for our audience who are on the younger side, 
1984 was probably a Democratic star who likely would have gotten the nomination had that scandal not occurred. Right, right. He sunk him. He sunk his own chances politically forever because he not only did something bad, but he actually was brazen enough to think that he wouldn't get that he would wouldn't get caught when he when he and bragged about that. So, I, I mean, I think it's very, your question is interesting because it's like, will will Qatar? consequences for this is this a pr win for qatar or not and i don't really know the answer yet i'm not entirely sure how you measure that um uh but i think in terms of just being on the tip of everyone's tongue like if name recognition and as and the branding exercise is worth something then this seems like a big success um i think if it's if it's a little bit more fine-grained maybe not as much so Ken, with all this corruption the history of corruption the current games as we look to the future of international uh, football and FIFA, what is to be done to improve transparency and accountability? How how do we ensure that? I mean, sports is so important for people around the world. And obviously there are incentive structures for countries and the people within FIFA and other individuals involved to engage in this corrupt cycle. Uh, what is to be done to decrease this incentive structure and ensure that there are more safeguards? You know, I think that the, the after effect of this criminal case was there were some attempts to try to train, change that. And the, the basic tool was um, threat of criminal sanction. Right. So the U.S. government is extremely powerful. Um, the laws about jurisdiction and about money laundering um, are very helpful to U.S. prosecutors to get people outside of the country on these things. And um, so that, that was the stick. Right. Um, and and it was successful in getting rid of all these people. But FIFA very much resisted, uh, has always resisted and continues to re resist the other I think, important part of this, which is kind of day to day regulation. Right. I mean, when we think about when the Justice Department in the U.S. goes after a bank for some kind of illicit behavior, what uh, it, and also I should say not just a bank. You could say you could think of like a school district too, where they catch them doing something bad. There's a there's a immediate punishment kind of element, but then there's some kind of a long term oversight element. They they install some kind of a watchdog in the school district or in the bank who's there to make sure that they're they're complying with whatever rules they abide by. But FIFA has utterly refused to have any kind of oversight on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, Switzerland, where it's based, is, is is not a country that's particularly interested in um, uh, being a watchdog or doing any kind of independent regulation of nonprofit organizations within its borders. In fact, uh, <clears throat> Switzerland hosts more um, uh, international sporting organization headquarters um, than all the rest of the world's countries combined. It's an incredible number of sport-related NGOs are based in Switzerland. You know, FIFA, of course, and the Olympics, but kind of think of a sport and it's probably based there. Um, boxing and basketball, et cetera, et cetera, are all based in Switzerland. And that's because Switzerland has basically said, you know, we'll base, we'll cut, we'll charge you almost nothing in taxes and we won't mess with you and you won't bother your business. And these organizations love that. And so FIFA doesn't want anyone to tell it what to do. And whenever ever countries other than the U.S. try to get involved in the management of FIFA within, you know, their national associations or an international level, FIFA threatens them with sanction and even expulsion um, from its, from international soccer. And they, you know, those countries, we mentioned much earlier in this conversation that the political importance of these, of the sport is very high in these countries. Politicians 
um, can't need to be on the right side of, of football to be able to ensure that they'll win. And if you're the politician who's, who oversees an administration that gets you kicked out of FIFA, that's the end of your political career. You know, if you live in a country like Chile or if you live in a country like, you know, Spain or something. And so they don't they don't really have it's interesting. They don't really have that kind of leverage to push back on FIFA. I mean, the U.S. was able to do it, A, because the Justice Department is very strong and B, because there's no um, there's no sort of uh, blowback in your face if you go after FIFA. People in the U.S. aren't going to care enough. And that just is fairly unique around the world. So long answer to the question, which is I don't think in the end, in the long term, FIFA faces massive um, uh, pressure to continue to stay reformed. I mean, the reforms FIFA has done, in my opinion, are mostly window dressing. It's changed some of its voting procedures and changed some of its committee memberships. But ultimately, the structural problems and the lack of oversight that led it down the road to perdition are still very much in effect. Well, on that note, Ken, thank you so much for joining us here today to discuss this very timely uh, topic uh, amidst the backdrop of the World Cup that is happening right now. Uh, audience, uh, for your information, you can uh, read uh, Ken's book in 2018 on this very topic. The book is called Red Card, How the U.S. Blew the Whistle on the World's Biggest Sports Scandal. And you can also see Ken in the Netflix docuseries FIFA Uncovered. Uh, Ken, thank you so much. Thanks, guys, for having me on. It was fun.